Walks Connecting. London Walks here with your daily London fix. Story time, history time. Douglas. Dr. Douglas Stevenson. Penny's father. Remember him well. Remember him ever so fondly. And you're going to need some footnotes for that introduction, so here you go. Penny is Mary's best friend. Mary, as many of you will know, is my little English rose. Penny grew up in Bradford, in Yorkshire. She and Mary met at Arts, the London Drama School, where they trained as dancers. Douglas, Dr. Stevenson, Penny's much-loved dad, was a Scot. Fond of his pipe and his two fingers of malt whiskey of an evening, Douglas wasn't fond of London. Bradford was as far south as he was willing to venture. Ask him about London, he'd have a puff on his pipe and a sip of his Glenfiddich and let you know that, London, they're all after your money down there. Well, Douglas wasn't alone in that appraisal. That charge, with some justification, has been leveled against London from the year dot, right from London's earliest beginnings. Archaeologists have found some 400 letters written on wax tablets, written by London's first citizens, Romans. Almost all of them are hard as nails, business communications. One of the oldest, it's been dated to possibly the first century and at the latest, 160 CE. It was written by Rufus, son of Callisnus. It's datelined Londinio. Rufus says, Greetings to Epilochus and all his fellows. I believe you know I am very well. If you have made the list, please send it. Do you look after everything carefully? See that thou turnest that slave girl into cash. You make sure you turn that slave girl into cash. It doesn't get any more hard-headed than that. And that cord, make money, lots of it, do business, survival of the fittest, prey on the weak and the unsuspecting and country bumpkins, should they come your way. That cord is sounded again and again in the annals of the London experience. It runs like a gold thread down through English literature. It's pretty much the entire thrust of the famous medieval poem, London Lickpenny. We know the poem was written about 1410. We don't know who the author was. That probably to modern ears unfamiliar word in the title, Lickpenny, was a 15th century epithet for London. London licks up the pence that come near it. And there, in that title, you have, in concentrated form, the gist of the poem. A poor, simple, Kentish husbandman has a legal grievance, a well-founded legal grievance. He comes up to London seeking legal redress. And, of course, he doesn't get it. Wherever he turns, whichever court he turns up at, doesn't get it because, as we hear over and over, it's the last line of just about every stanza. It's a 16-stanza poem. In the last line of every stanza but one, the simple country clodhopper, way out of his depths, repines, 
for lack of money I may not speed. And it's not just that the law wants nothing to do with him because of his limited means. He's accosted wherever he turns by London costers and sharpers. Sharpers is self-explanatory. A coster is a street seller. And because he's got little or no money, all of the tempting commodities that are thrust in his face are also beyond his means. So all those goodies for our simple Simon are also just another torment. Would that were all. In the very first stanza, he goes to a man of law in Westminster and says, For Mary's love, that holy saint, have pity on the poor that would proceed. I would give silver, but my purse is faint. Well, the Westminster man of law has zero interest in doing anything for the Kentish bumpkin. And we hear it there for the first time. It's the last line of the first stanza. For lack of money, I may not speed. And sure enough, he almost instantly is hit up by a London thief. The thief doesn't pick his pocket. He light fingers the hood off the country bumpkin's head. It's right there, the first two lines of the second stanza. As I thrust throughout the throng among them all, my hood was gone. It's very crowded. He's trying to get out, and a London thief separates him from his hood. Much later in the poem, he goes over to Cornhill, where a lot of stolen merchandise is being fenced. And sure enough, I saw where hang mine own hood that I had lost in Westminster among the throng. Some Londoner will sell the greenhorn his own property. Them's the breaks. Simple Simon says, To be mine own hood again, me thought it wrong. And at the end of the poem, wiser and poorer, he goes home to Kent, to his plough. He says, Jesus, save London. For he that lacketh money with them, he shall not speed. Well, that's London in 1410. Hop, skip, and a jump three centuries forward, and John Gay is warning us to be careful. If you're a greenhorn, if you don't watch your step, you're fair game for London sharpers. The poem is called Trivia, or The Art of Walking the Streets of London. Gay says you've got to be especially careful at night. Here, by way of example is a gay word to the wise about Lincoln's Inn Fields. And he adds, be very careful about Linkmen. The promise they hold out is to guide you through the inky black streets of London with their link, their flaming torch. But very often they're in the pay of roughs, muggers we'd say today. They don't take you to safety. They take you straight into the maw of danger where you'll be separated from your purse and other valuables. Here's the stanza. Where Lincoln's Inn, wide space, is railed around, cross not with venturous step, there oft is found the lurking thief, who, while the daylight shone, made the walls echo with his begging tone. That crutch, which late compassion moved, shall wound thy bleeding head and fell thee to the ground. Though thou art tempted by the linkman's call, yet trust him not along the lonely wall. In the midway he'll quench the flaming brand, 
and share the booty with the pilfering band. Still keep the public streets where oily rays shot from the crystal lamp or spread the ways. What Gay underlines is that Londoners can't be trusted. They're quick change artists. They beg by day and thieve by night. So that's a cool 20 centuries of London sharp practice. From Rufus in Londinium to Douglas in Bradford 20 centuries later, not wanting to have anything to do with London because they're all after your money down there. And what do you know? It's by way of a preamble. The main act is a tale that's date-specific, specific to this date, October 24th. October 24th, 1380, just a few years before Geoffrey Chaucer started writing the Canterbury Tales. This is an item from the City of London letter book. It's titled, False Beggars, 1380. Here we go. On the 24th day of October, in the fourth year of Richard II, John Ward of the County of York and Richard Lidham of the County of Somerset, two impostors, were brought to the hall of the Guildhall of London before John Hadley, mayor, the aldermen, and the sheriffs, and questioned for that, whereas they were stout enough to work for their food and raiment, and had their tongues to talk with, they, the same John Ward and Richard Linham, did there pretend that they were mutes, and had been deprived of their tongues, and went about in diverse places of the city aforesaid, carrying in their hands two L measures, an iron hook and pincers, and a piece of leather in shape like part of a tongue, edged with silver and with writing around it, to this effect. This is the tongue of John Ward, with which instruments, and by means of diverse signs, they gave many persons to understand that they were traitors, in token whereof they carried the said L measures, and that they had been plundered by robbers of their goods, and that their tongues had also been drawn out with the said hook, and then cut off with the pincers, they making a horrible noise, like unto a roaring, and opening their mouths, where it seemed to all who examined the same, that their tongues had been cut off, to the defrauding of other poor and infirm persons, and in manifest deceit of the whole of the people. Wherefore, they were asked how they would acquit themselves thereof, upon which they acknowledged that they had done all the things above imputed to them, and as it appeared to the court that of their evil intent and falsity they had done the things aforesaid, and in deceit of all the people, and to the end that other persons might beware of such, and the like evil intent, falsity, and deceit, it was awarded that they should be put upon the pillory on three different days, each time for one hour in the day, namely on the Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, before the Feast of St. Simon and St. Jude, the said instruments being hung about their necks each day, which punishment being completed, 
they were instructed to have them taken back to the jail of Newgate, there to remain until orders should be given for their release. Well, we'll leave John Ward and Richard Linham. You see what a corrupting effect London has on people. John and Richard were a couple of innocent country boys from York and Somerset. They come to London and get led astray. Anyway, we'll leave John and Richard languishing in Newgate, and we hope repenting their ways. We'll leave them and get to Today in London. Here's your recommendation. Let's go seriously off-piste to the Victor Wind Museum of Curiosities, Fine Art, and Natural History, the first all-encompassing museum to open in London in over a century. And talk about quirky. You've got human hair. You've got the cabinet of monsters. You've got dead pets. You've got an absinthe parlor and tastings. You've got dodo bones and McDonald's Happy Meal toys and mad women's doodles, all in a hackney basement. You heard it first from London Walks. You've been listening to the Today in London History podcast, emanating from www.walks.com, home of London Walks, London's signature walking tour company, London's local, time-honored, fiercely independent, family-owned, just the right size walking tour company. And as long as we're at it, London's multi-award winning walking tour company. Indeed, London's only award winning walking tour company. And here's the secret. London Walks is essentially run as a guides cooperative. That's the key to everything. It's the reason we're able to attract and keep the best guides in London. You can get schlubbers to do this for 20 pounds a walk but you cannot get world-class guides, let alone accomplished professionals. It's not rocket science. You get what you pay for. And just as surely, you also get what you don't pay for. Back in 1968, when we got started, we quickly came to a fork in the road. We had to answer a searching question. Do we want to make the most money, or do we want to be the best walking tour company in the world? You want to make the most money, you go the schlubber's route. You want to be the best walking tour company in the world, you do whatever you have to do to attract and keep the best guides in London. You want them guiding for you, not for somebody else. Bears repeating, the way we're structured, a guides cooperative, is the key to the whole thing. It's the reason for all those awards. It's the reason people who know go with London Walks. It's the reason we've got a large following, a lively, loyal, discerning following. Quality attracts quality. It's the reason we're able, uniquely, to front our walks with accomplished, in many cases, distinguished professionals. Barristers, doctors, geologists, museum curators, archaeologists, historians, criminal defense lawyers, Royal Shakespeare Company actors, a bevy of MVPs, Oscar winners, people who've won the Guide of the Year Award. Well, you get the idea. As that travel writer famously put it, if this were a golf tournament, every name on the leaderboard would be a London Walks guide. And as we put it, London Walks guides make the new familiar, and the familiar new. And on that agreeable note, come then, let us go forward together.
on some great London walks. See you tomorrow.